Welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name is Raymond O'Connor. And I'm Ariel Rasco. And welcome to part two of designing awesome puzzles for your table of Dungeons and Dragons. In our last episode, we discussed what makes for a great puzzle at your table of Dungeons and Dragons in abstract. We talked about some ideas of things that we've seen in puzzles, either published by third-party publishers or published by Wizards of the Coast, that we think make for a disappointing experience at the table. And we even alluded to some things that we think make for a better puzzle. Today, we're going to be talking about those ideas in a way more concrete fashion. Ariel and I have prepared our own puzzles that we think demonstrate the points that we discussed last episode and the points that we'll be discussing today. And we will be posting each of the puzzles that Ariel and I designed to the Running Off the Rails blog on the day that this episode releases. So if they sound like something that you would like to use in your game, we'll include a link to runningofftherails.com in the episode description below. So for today's discussion, we've picked out six high-level topics from last week's episode that we want to go in more detail with these examples. They are, how many others have tried to solve this puzzle in the past? How easy is it to discover the puzzle? How easy is it to bypass or get around the puzzle? What percentage of your encounter as a whole actually is a puzzle? Can you remove any superfluous ability checks? And last, and maybe most important for what we talked about last week, how plot blocking is this puzzle? The first point that we'll be discussing is perhaps the easiest. How many others have tried to solve the puzzle in the past? Just by asking yourself this question about the puzzle you're designing, you'll avoid some pretty obvious and glaring pitfalls that actually do run a pretty significant risk of pulling your players out of verisimilitude. If the puzzle is deadly, well, are there any dead bodies in the room? Are there any skeletons of people who have tried to solve this puzzle in the past and failed? And then ask yourself, if the puzzle springs like a trap, well then how does it get reset? People have died trying to solve this puzzle in the past. Who came by after to clean up if all of those dead bodies have been removed? One of the puzzles I've designed triggers zombies to start crawling up from pits that are at the back of the room. The zombies attack the players, and if the zombies kill all of the intruders or the people who are trying to solve the puzzle, well, then they drag those dead bodies and those remnants of people who have tried to solve the puzzle in the past down back into the pits with them. This answers the question of, if people have died here before, well, where are all of those dead bodies? This kind of thinking definitely adds some more believability and realism to your traps, and I think that that is a fun thing to do. But I also think that these constraints just help you be creative. To think about a trap and have some rules in mind, it allows you to focus in and figure something out that works for your game. One of the things that I'm picturing when I think about traps resetting 
maybe there is a one-off trap that doesn't get reset. If your players come into a dungeon and they see a trap there that has killed somebody and the trap has not been reset, they know that they're getting into dangerous territory and you can start to foreshadow other traps for them to look out for. And it's a way of communicating to your players and maybe throwing very deadly traps at them while still giving them notice so they don't feel like a deadly trap that downs one of their players was completely out of the blue. Dungeons that feature so many traps that the people who are trying to protect things with them don't even need to be worried about them getting reset are a great setting to introduce a rival adventuring party because there's this whole question of do you let your rivals go deep into the dungeon assuming that eventually they will die to the traps and that will just make it easier for you to go through or are you afraid to let them go ahead of you because maybe they'll defeat the traps and then they'll be able to get to the treasure before you do this kind of uncertainty and this tension can be great for a dungeon that features traps that don't reset i really like this idea it's so evocative and i think it's a great example of again just thinking about how your puzzles work will inspire you to not just change the puzzle but like ray has done here add more characters to the setting because people in the world are going to interact with your puzzle if there's something valuable hidden away many people are going to seek it out the second of our six bullet points that we want to cover today is the ease of discovering the puzzle how easy is it to find the puzzle? More often than not, we as Dungeon Masters prepare material that our players don't run into at all. We want to hide the puzzle because it protects something valuable, but we don't want to design a puzzle and then have our players just not find it at all. However, if we make the puzzle too obvious, well then it begs the question, well why Hasn't this puzzle been attempted by hundreds of people? Certainly someone in the last millennia must have been able to solve this puzzle. I think this is a good point to introduce the puzzle that I've been working on. The setup to my puzzle is a thieves guild that steals a very wondrous magical item, the Mirror of Life Trapping. They want to sell this item for a stupendously high price. So they have drummed up excitement and they've actually posted about this in the town square. They want to bring in potential buyers who they haven't worked with before. And I think that one of the things that inspired me to create this public-facing auction is a word that Ray used to describe puzzles when we were planning this episode. He talked about a puzzle being notorious. And I really liked this idea that everyone will have heard of this amazing item that the Thieves Guild have stolen. And the players really have the option to opt in to this plot feature that I've introduced to the game. They'll be able to learn about it anywhere, and if they're interested in it, they can go and seek more information about the Thieves' Guild and maybe where they're hiding this Mirror of Life Trapping. And that's where my puzzle really starts, is a Thieves' Guild headquarters that otherwise I as a DM would have a lot of incentive in terms of realism to hide from my players completely. They should never find the Thieves' Guild headquarters. Thieves' Guild headquarters is a very secret place. If I'm doing my job at creating a believable Thieves' Guild, the players should have a very hard time finding it. But now that I've made this notorious puzzle that everyone has heard about, I have escalated the 
notoriety of the Thieves Guild and made it more possible for my players to learn about where they've been hiding this magic item. In a not super well-known manga called Magi, the Labyrinth of Magic, there is this idea of labyrinths that suddenly appear throughout the world. And everybody knows that something very, very valuable can be found inside the labyrinth. But everyone who goes in dies and never returns. This is a notorious puzzle. It is something that you cannot miss. It is so famous, in fact, that kings will amass armies of hundreds of people to go and just throw at the labyrinth, hoping that the person who emerges with the treasure will give the treasure to the king at the end. This makes it so that your players can't miss your puzzle. I think this maze example is really, really cool, but it does remind me of a point we brought up that if you are introducing one piece of a puzzle, you don't necessarily want it to be a perfectly lethal obstacle that your players have to solve. We want to be able to circumvent the puzzle if the players don't immediately find the solution. In the case of the Thieves' Headquarters, I think that there are many ways to interact with this story. The Thieves' Guild Headquarters has a passcode, and you can use that passcode to get in, and that's solving a puzzle. But if you need to, you can also get in by joining the guild or talking to somebody, following them in, teleporting in. There are ways to circumvent the puzzle of figuring out the passcode to this Thieves' Guild, which is going to be more of a word-solving type of puzzle. That's right. Last episode, we spent a lot of time talking about not blocking your plot with your puzzles. Ariel's door is a lock that has a puzzle on it. And if his players go around this door and find some other way to get the passphrase, maybe they interrogate someone from the Thieves' Guild. Maybe they're asking around, asking the wrong questions, uh, and someone from the Thieves' Guild ambushes them in an alleyway, and now all of a sudden they have someone who they can get this information from in a way that isn't solving the puzzle that Ariel designed. That's okay, that's a feature, not a bug of the puzzle. It means that Ariel's players have decided to engage with the puzzle in this way. If anything, it shows that the players respect the notorious difficulty of just showing up at this Thieves' Guild door and trying to solve the puzzle using your own wits. If anything, it shows how much respect the players have for the intellect or the wit of these members of the Thieves' Guild, that they think that those Thieves' Guild members are able to solve the puzzle, but the players are nervous to try and attempt the same thing. And I do think it is possible, if your players are really looking for more ways to circumvent a puzzle, that I could say there's a door to a headquarters. Of course, you can break in. And maybe breaking in just takes a certain amount of force damage. Just busting down a door is a way to circumvent this puzzle. It makes a lot of noise, and you'd have to do it at a time where you make sure nobody is there watching. But that's one way to circumvent the puzzle. And I think another way might be to obviously use your thieves tools. And this is maybe engaging a bit more with an ability check. So I'd try to avoid it if my players were still interested in the puzzle. I might not bring up the idea of just breaking in, unless the players bring up that idea to me. But maybe I make the DC really high, so I give them an incentive not to do it, because it might take 
two or three minutes to beat a DC 25 thieves tools check for even a, a pretty good rogue. Yeah, I imagine that the hardest door to pick the lock of would be the doorway to a headquarters filled with people proficient in picking locks. <laughs> if anyone would have a, a really, really difficult lock to pick, it would be people who can like practice picking it and confirm that it is hard to pick that lock. Yeah, that's a really great point. And also ties into our first point. How have people gotten in here in the past? Maybe somebody has tried to pick this lock before and you can see you know, scars of... Uh, different traps that the Thieves Guild have laid, and you can see that this type of lock is way better than any lock your your rogue has ever seen before, and that can dissuade people from trying to break in and beat this puzzle that way. And so you can really clue in your party that this Thieves Guild's headquarters is going to be a tough nut to crack in some other traditional ways. Exactly. And something else to think about when we're discussing this third point, this third question, how easy is it to circumvent the puzzle, is to think about incentive structures. How are we setting up incentive structures to incentivize our players to do certain things, right? So when we think about this Thieves Guild door, we are incentivizing the players to find some way to get past it because presumably there's an awesome magic item on the other side or maybe they want to join the guild and that's why they're trying to to beat the puzzle almost as a way to prove that they are smart enough or crafty enough to be joining the guild when we're thinking about whether or not our players even want to try and circumvent a puzzle incentive structures are very useful to think about also so if bypassing this puzzle that you are creating for your dungeon requires valuable resources, your players may try to find the correct or the happy path way through, which more often than not is solving the puzzle. If your players can bypass a puzzle by using the polymorph spell or by using the dimension door spell, well, fourth level spell slots, depending on what tier of adventuring your players are currently doing or what level they are, could be their most valuable resource. And when you dimension door, you can only take one person with you. So imagine that two people in your party have the dimension door spell. That's the case for my group. Trickery, Cleric, and a Warlock both have the Dimension Door spell. Well, it's going to require one usage of that fourth level slot from two of my three players for the party to bypass the puzzle. So they're probably going to try pretty hard to solve the puzzle because that's a very valuable resource for them. In the first room of a temple that I've designed that has multiple puzzles in it, there are four stones on the walls that all must be pushed in at the same time to open the door to the next part of the temple. Hand iconography makes it fairly clear that all you need to do is press these stones into the wall all at the same time. That is not the difficulty of the puzzle. The difficulty is that different stones on the floor are trapped and some of them are safe. The players whether they know it or not, because I've playtested this puzzle a bunch of times and had very different results throughout, whether the players know it or not, they have a, a map that will show them which 
stones on the ground are trapped if only they orient the paper the right way to match up with the correct orientation of the room. I've had some players really try to engage with the puzzle aspect of this puzzle and look for clues to tell them which way is the correct orientation, uh, and that usually works pretty well. And I've had other players just test it out. They test floor panels in such a way that through the process of elimination, eventually, through figuring out which floor panels are trapped or safe, they figure out what the correct orientation of the map is. And this incentive structure helps to mold player behavior. The players understand that they can save hit points by not using this trial and error method of figuring out which floor panels are safe and which floor panels are trapped. And some players decide to engage in that way. And honestly, that's a more fun way, uh, in my experience, to figure out what the right answer is, is to have some really nervous sacrifice that's been elected by the group just experimenting with different floor panels, knowing that a trap could spring at any moment. And, and then the players get through the puzzle. So this is a really good example of a puzzle that is more of a hazard than it is a lock or a riddle, where the players can get through it by brute forcing their way through the puzzle, but they will sacrifice resources to do so, to circumvent the solving of the puzzle, which is to use the correct clues to find the correct orientation of the map and not take any damage from the floor panels, they, they can decide, no, it's worth it for us to not solve this puzzle, to, to just take some damage to figure it out that way, and that's how we will circumvent this puzzle and get to the next room. I really love this example so much because you started off talking about teleportation as a resource and these high-level spells as resources to allow you to circumvent some puzzles. And there are some clever things you can do with the rules of teleportation and whether or not the players can see where they're teleporting to and stuff like that. But definitely the most straightforward resource that players can use to get through hazards and get through trials that are protecting some magical item are going to be their hit points. And this example is great because using a little bit of your hit points makes incremental process towards solving the puzzle. Like Ray is talking about, you need to determine the orientation of your map, and you can do that with your own hit points. And if you mess up and you get something wrong, you can use a little bit more of your hit points to, to check again, and you're making incremental progress with your hit points. And I love that part of this puzzle so much. I think it really leans into a classic style of D&D, where as you're working your way through a dungeon and you're getting towards your goal, you're getting weaker and, and more hurt and you're just scraping by by the skin of your teeth. This reminds me a lot of, of some more Harry Potter examples where you can think of the horcruxes and, you know, if Dumbledore had figured out a way to protect himself better from finding uh, Voldemort's ring, he wouldn't have had to lose his hand and his arm, but he was able to protect himself enough that it didn't kill him when he was getting that horcrux. So I think that's a very classic example. And even the example we talked about before with the vault, you know, Fluffy is guarding the Philosopher's Stone and 
in a D&D sense, you know, if you introduce a Cerberus-type creature to your players, they might kill that creature. I wouldn't want that encounter to be perfectly deadly and have them have no chance of killing that creature. But if they fight perfectly, they're still using their hit points as a resource, whereas if they solve a puzzle about playing a flute or something, then they aren't using their hit points and they can get through. So I think when we're talking about circumventing a puzzle, your hit points are a super classic resource that you can use to just brute force your way through the puzzle, like you said, Ray. A hundred percent. And that's actually a pretty good segue into our fourth question or fourth element that you should be focusing on when designing a puzzle for your table. What percentage of your encounter is a puzzle? An encounter that is 90% or 100% a puzzle allows for a harder puzzle because the players have more bandwidth to just focus on solving the puzzle and there aren't other things going on. However, it puts way more pressure on the puzzle to carry the entire fun or the entire experience of that encounter. When I was designing my short part of the adventure where the players have to go and find this wondrous magical item in the Thieves Guild, I was thinking of the initial fact-finding as having maybe some puzzle elements but not being strictly a puzzle. So that's finding out more of the Thieves Guild. You have some social encounters where you could talk to people at seedy bars and find members of the Thieves Guild, or you could stealth your way around and, and try to follow people who you think might be members of the Thieves Guild. That has some puzzle elements to it, but the piece of the session that I thought would be 100% a puzzle would be you get to the door of the Thieves Guild, and there's a passphrase there, and there's a hint for the passphrase, and you have to figure out what it is in order to get inside. That's a full-on 100% puzzle. When they get to this Thieves Headquarters, the passcode that I prepared is a pangram. A pangram is a phrase that includes all the letters of the alphabet. The super classic example you can think of is the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. And so I'll have in the hint a Q and an X and a Z and maybe my players notice that, oh, there's one of every letter in this passcode and they can figure it out. And maybe a very intelligent character, I could give them a hint if they're still working on this. This is such a puzzle that my players could totally get out of character, stop the session, go on a group chat, and figure this out. It's really a full-on classic D&D puzzle, and I think that many players that I run D&D for would totally enjoy this, and we'd have a lot of fun. My friends like word games a lot. But there's also this idea that what if I wanted to make it more like 90% of my encounter was a puzzle, or 80% of my encounter was the puzzle? Ray asked me this question and helped me come up with an answer that I thought could be an interesting way to raise the stakes and change the dynamic a bit and give other players the ability to shine in the moment. And maybe one of my characters is a lookout and they notice that a couple Thieves Guild members are arriving and maybe my players are still working on this puzzle and they want to distract the Thieves Guild members. So one of the characters that has good charisma or one of the characters that is very strong and could start a fight, maybe start a bit of a, a mob in the streets to distract these Thieves Guild members, suddenly they're engaging with the encounter in a way that isn't solving the puzzle. They're using their character sheet and their spells and their skills to distract Thieves Guild members to give the other maybe high intelligence characters or the players that are more interested in the puzzle itself 
time to solve it. And then I can introduce a timer to the encounter as well. And that's changing the dynamic a little bit and adding new features to make the puzzle not 100% a puzzle, but more of a D&D &D encounter. I think it's really important that Ariel has this mindset of this door is a Dungeons and Dragons encounter, not, not just a puzzle. A, the puzzle is a part of this encounter, but he can introduce and remove different elements as necessary to optimize for the fun of his players at his table. So if 10 minutes have passed by, maybe Ariel set himself a timer where he's like, if they haven't solved this puzzle in 10 minutes, maybe it's not going so well. Ariel can inject a distraction into the puzzle where hey, right now at this moment, you notice a Thieves Guild member is approaching. And now Ariel has injected something different into the encounter and made the puzzle less of the percentage of the thing that needs to carry all of the fun for this encounter. And he's also given the players an avenue to get more hints for the puzzle by maybe they stealth and maybe they try to listen to what the Thieves Guild members say as the passphrase, and maybe they, they hear the third word. And because they realize that this puzzle is a pangram, getting just a single word is enough of a hint for them to puzzle out the remaining words. I love that Ariel has this perspective that isn't cut and dry, yes or no. You either solve the puzzle or you don't. He's always thinking of a way to organically add hints or add different changing dynamics or add fun into the puzzle, even if it is just to break it up too, just to, to, to add a combat in between. And then maybe the players go back to solving the puzzle uh, because they didn't want any hints. And that was the decision that the players made, that they just wanted to subdue these thieves and not ask them any questions that might make the puzzle easier to solve. This is very different from a situation where a dungeon master carves out a 100% puzzle and there's nothing in this area that can interfere or add any changing dynamics to this encounter or it's such a sterile environment that when the player does eventually like crack and add something to the encounter to make it to kind of like change the pace up it becomes a little too obvious that, oh, well, the Dungeon Master is, is giving us a hint via this NPC who has conveniently arrived uh, at the perfect time to inject more information into this puzzle. Yeah, I do think this question of realism and hints arriving at just the right moment is kind of an, a delicate balance. Sometimes I just try to look based on the fun that my players are having and what I think they actually want in this scenario. And D&D doesn't have to be perfectly realistic. I think puzzles in general occur more in the D&D world than in the real world, but we still want to maintain as much realism as we can. So letting your players get involved, maybe telling them ahead of time that a hint is possible, that they know Thieves Guild people are coming in and out of these headquarters. They maybe see one come out as they enter the place could clue them into the idea that Later on, I might bring in another Thieves Guild member as a hint. And I think as a dungeon master, a useful technique that you can use to disguise a, a hint is to dress it up or disguise it as a threat. So something that is bad 
is a small bad, but then unlocks that hint. So, so instead of a helpful NPC arriving at just the right time to just tell the players the hint, um, an enemy arrives and initiates combat with the players, and the players quickly subdue them um, and, and interrogate the, the hint out of them. Um, so as a dungeon master, if you find yourself in a situation where your players need a hint, uh, and you need a way to give them a hint, I think that dressing up the hint as a threat or a bad thing uh, is a really good way to keep the encounter feeling satisfying and fun as opposed to it feeling like you've just given your players the answer. One of the riddles that I prepared or the puzzle that I prepared that demonstrates this is way less of a puzzle than the one that Ariel created. I, as a dungeon master, or to my personal tastes, I have way less, I think, faith in myself or confidence that I can create a puzzle or a riddle that can carry most of the fun uh, of the encounter. So as a way of coping with this lack of self-confidence, or maybe it's just self-awareness that this is not one of my strengths, I created a puzzle that has way more combat in it and is way less of a puzzle. In the second room of this temple uh, dungeon that I've created, uh, the first being the, the room with the trapped floor that I talked about in the first example, there's a room that has iconography of greenery and lush jungles. Um, so basically trying to evoke to the players that the correct color of this iconography is green. There is a pedestal in the center of the room that has a light shining down all the way from outside through the top of the temple. And that light, when a prism is placed into the pedestal, uh, gets reflected all around the room in the color of the color of the gem that is put into the pedestal. Zombies climb up from pits in the back of the floor, and all of the zombies drop a specific colored gemstone when they are killed. They drop either a yellow gem, a red gem, or a blue gem. The pedestal, when, when a player looks at it to, to examine it, I don't make them make an ability check. Just when someone says, I wanna check out this, this pedestal to see what's going on, I make it clear that there's enough room for two gems to fit. Now the players, through brute force, can try every combination of two colors, yellow, blue, or red. The correct answer is yellow and blue, because when those two colors are combined into the pedestal, it shows green around the room. This is a puzzle, it's a riddle, but there's also not that many things that you have to try to brute force your way through the puzzle. In the 12 times that I've playtested this temple for new players, no group has ever failed to just through brute force try all of the combinations, even in the two cases where the groups couldn't figure out the answer. But that's okay because most of this encounter is actually combat against the zombies. And it's this feeling of, oh, th these zombies are going to keep coming until we've been able to try all of the correct combinations. And as a result, even in the cases where the players don't solve the puzzle, they just brute force their way through it, it's still satisfying because it feels like they overcame a dangerous scenario 
that perhaps weaker or more typical uh, explorers or adventurers wouldn't have been able to overcome. And the reason why no one's been able to solve this puzzle in the past, even though it's so simple, is because, well, they weren't strong enough to kill the zombies and the zombies killed them. Um, so this is just serves as an example of a puzzle encounter that is way more uh, encounter or combat than it is puzzle. The fifth item on our checklist when we're going through and designing puzzles is to look at your puzzle and try to remove any superfluous ability checks. One of the reasons I love this zombie puzzle so much is that it really isn't a scenario where your players are going to ask you to roll a die to try to solve the puzzle that way. They're not going to try to do an insight check to figure out the clue. They're not going to try to do a stealth check to overhear the solution. They actually have to engage with the game of D&D. They're going to have to get their hands dirty and get involved in a combat. I think that in contrast to the same puzzle where the puzzle pieces are hidden in little traps that a rogue could uh, disarm and then lockpick their way into getting the puzzle pieces, uh, Ray's example is just so much more dynamic and fun and Combat is always going to be better, I think, than just a rogue going through one by one and rolling dice until they hit a certain number. You know, they roll enough die until they get four 20s, and then they can get all the puzzle pieces. Nobody is really engaged other than the rogue, and I don't even think the rogue is that engaged. Although they might enjoy getting to use the thing that they are very good at, the, the rest of the characters are just sitting around. But in combat... Everybody has something to do. It is the number one thing that D&D was written about. Combat is what every character has tons and tons of tools for. I think putting these puzzle pieces into a combat is such a great way to get everyone involved in the puzzle and remove the need for hints and checks that are going to give your players a way to roll their way out of the puzzle. One awesome way to address giving your players information and perhaps uh, important or hidden information without just having them roll a die to get that information is to give out handouts to your players. The puzzle that Ariel has prepared has an awesome example of hiding information in handouts for players. And I think this is a great way of removing superfluous ability checks from your puzzles. Whenever I design a one-shot especially, but whenever I get the chance, I really love to give handouts to players. I think as the DM, you are often describing a world to people, and, and just by describing a chair or a desk, you are almost pointing out to your players that it is a thing of interest. And at the same time, I don't want to be describing literally every single thing in the room to try to hide the points of interest from my players. But video games don't really have this problem. They render the whole room and your players explore it. So I love to give handouts where I can show my players the thing that they need to explore. In the case of the Thieves Guild encounter that I set up, there is a poster that is plastered around Town Square. And on that poster, there are some clues. There is a hidden code message in the Thieves Guild coat of arms and the other thieves know to look out for this, so your players could find out about this by overhearing some thieves, or they could just look through the poster and look for any possible clue they could find. And I love this option because 
your players can just look at the thing. I don't have to tell them to make a perception check to see if they notice something on a poster that is in their minds. Uh, because if you're describing a hidden object, it's very hard to do that without just giving it away. So handouts are great for that. This way of giving something to your players, I think, removes the need for you to describe something with ability checks. And it also gives a little bit of an option to use ability checks maybe in maybe a more nuanced way. I've had this concept work a few times. It's a little bit weird, but I've had three or four handouts prepared. And I would let my players know that I had multiple handouts prepared. And if they rolled a high perception check, I would give them the handout that corresponded to a 20 or greater perception check. And I would have a handout for like a five or less perception check, like a critical fail. And if they got that handout, they would notice fewer things. So the, the piece of paper that I would give them would actually just have fewer hints on it. It would still have one or two or three hints, but the paper with a 20 perception check would have like five or eight hints on it. And that way my players could engage with the story and use handouts, but still use their high intelligence characters and their expertise in certain things and their abilities. That has worked out in ways that have been really fun. In the case of the uh, Thieves hideout, I have a puzzle at the very end of it where there are multiple mirrors and you need to pick out which mirror is the true mirror of life trapping. And one of the ways that I've run this is where I can give out multiple handouts and the handout for the highest perception check has like 10 different clues for why one mirror might be the real mirror of life trapping. And that can maybe be based on an arcana check as well. And the lowest handout that I'll have still has some clues, and I think my players will be able to figure it out. But I do want to reward them if they are smart or have a lot of arcane talent in a cool way. My favorite iteration of this idea of having multiple handouts is when you have a player that has a really, really high ability score in a specific statistic. Maybe that is a very, very high intelligence wizard, or perhaps that is a character that has a very high perception score or has taken the observant feat, and you just give them the best handout and you give worse handouts to other players based on their passive scores. And perhaps you tell that player on the sly that they have a handout that reflects their very, very high score, and you don't tell the other players. And then I think that gives that player a really fun and cool opportunity to deliver the information that they have because of what they can see, because of the better handout that they have, to the other players via roleplay, which can feel very natural, I think, especially for a wizard who has very high intelligence to just be able to kind of figure things out more quickly that the other characters might have taken more time to come to the same conclusions. It's very cinematic, I think. Yeah, I think this experience of letting one player give the information is so great in a million different places in D&D. I love when my player knows their backstory better than I do, and if a question about their backstory comes up, they can deliver the exposition. They can tell all the players at the table about what the inn looks like in their hometown, and they can do that DMing for a little bit. And I think this experience of handouts works in a similar way. 
they can give a little of the exposition. They can do some of the describing of what they notice without me as the DM having to tell them that they notice something because they have a high, you know, intelligence or something. Yeah, exactly. I think another really fun way that you can include character statistics into a puzzle um, is based on how much time or how many resources a player has to solve the puzzle. I think in our last episode, we talked about a puzzle that I put together that failed. Uh, It was a failed attempt at a puzzle, a, a learning experience where I gave my players a sliding block puzzle that was too difficult. But one good thing that I did, and a thing that I will probably do again in the future, is the amount of time that I gave each player to solve the sliding block puzzle was based on their constitution score. Because once the puzzle started, all of the oxygen, all of the air, all of the breathable air got sucked out of the room. So the barbarian had the most time to solve the puzzle based on their constitution score. I think maybe using the example that Ariel gave, I would have given the barbarian, if they had a lower intelligence than the other players at the table, a harder sliding block puzzle to solve, but more time to solve that sliding block puzzle. And maybe the low constitution wizard who has a high intelligence would get a much easier sliding block puzzle because for that character, sliding block puzzles are easier because they have a high intelligence score, but way less time in which to solve that easier sliding block puzzle. So there's lots of different ways that you can play around with this idea of giving different players different tests based on their character attributes. That's that's brilliant. I love that idea so much that you're like literally modeling the realism of your D&D game by giving the wizard an easier puzzle to solve and giving the barbarian a harder puzzle to solve. But it's like somewhat, you know, similar versions of the same puzzle. That is so, so cool. I think some people might get annoyed by that, but like the way it would actually work out that it takes longer for the barbarian to solve the same puzzle is is so genius. I love that idea. Thank you. I, this was one of the ideas that I riffed while we were recording the episode. No, it's so <laughs> good. Ariel has. <laughs> so uh, it happens every once in a while, but I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it right yeah. now, too. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so that, that brings us to our final, our sixth and final bullet point that we wanted to discuss, which is what we spent a lot of time talking about last episode. Uh, So kind of just tying everything back together. How plot blocking is your puzzle? Do your players need to solve the puzzle to unlock the next part of the story? Asking yourself this question will help you avoid situations where you present an impossible puzzle that blocks the players from making forward progress. When I'm thinking of the the short little adventure of these interactions with the Thieves Guild and the puzzle to get into the Thieves Guild with a passcode, I'm thinking of what happens if my players don't get in? What happens if my players don't engage with that specific puzzle and they try to figure out other ways to engage with the story? I'm imagining that maybe my players could go to the auction and they could do all kinds of zany activities there at an underground 
identities hidden public auction, lots of people wearing masks and disguised self trying to buy this mirror of life trapping. I think that's one way where I could take a look at my puzzle and think about what happens if my players do not get invested in it. What happens if my players don't solve this puzzle and I can still keep the plot going forward of my interactions with this thieves guild. And I think there are many, many other ways that my players themselves will be able to explore the world and go through the plot without having the plot blocked by the puzzle that they could inform me of things that I would have never thought of in the first place. And I think that's because the puzzle is one piece of my world. It's one part of a larger story. It's not a door in a dungeon that is stopping my players from getting to the other side of the story. Right. To use the analogy that we used from last episode comparing locks to vaults, because Ariel, as the game master, has this perspective of the adventure isn't my puzzle. These two aren't synonymous. He is open to the idea that the players may never solve the puzzle and is therefore open to inventing or improvising ways that the story can continue in a compelling way where the players don't solve the puzzle. One of the things that we discussed before also was that the players could perhaps teleport beyond the door or sneak in behind another thief or capture a thief and interrogate some sort of a clue out of them or perhaps even just the entire answer to the passphrase out of them. Ariel has not taken this stance that I've seen other dungeon masters take with me in the past where you cannot continue until you solve the puzzle. You are stuck here. You are blocked from forward progress in this story until you solve this puzzle. And we are going to sit here and we're going to wait until either I give you the answer or you solve the puzzle. And that is just not fun for anybody. Having this more flexible mindset that the encounter should be fun the the puzzle should be fun even if the players don't solve it i think will put you in a more uh useful mindset as the person who is curating the experience for your players at your table to improvise or even perhaps plan ways that you can move the progress of the story forward that don't involve the players actually figuring out the puzzle or the riddle that you had designed in the first place. I think to me, the way I try to design around this space is also to think about like fun versus consequences. That as a DM, you really want to give consequences for your players' actions. You want their actions to mean something. And so if your players don't succeed at something, you want there to be repercussions. But with puzzles, sometimes the repercussions or the consequences of not solving the puzzle is your players lose. And I don't think that's always necessarily very fun. I want the scenario where my players have repercussions for not solving the puzzle to still be a scenario, to still be fun, not to just be a loss where your players have to cut whatever story that they were working on and try something completely different. I want there to be an alternative that is still engaged with the same plot. And maybe my players are at a disadvantage. I think disadvantages are very, very fun. And they can show your players that they could have done better if they had figured something else out. 
but I really want to think of a disadvantage being the result of a puzzle, being the repercussion for not solving the puzzle. I don't want to think of it as a loss for the players. Exactly. Another way of perhaps structuring your dungeon uh, around your puzzle or your puzzle around your dungeon is to make the puzzle block a shortcut or perhaps a secret passage or perhaps the fastest way through a dungeon. One of our most dedicated listeners, Psycho Puppy, posted on our Reddit page uh, that they were actually just designing a dungeon and they wanted to integrate a puzzle into it. And they had to protect a shortcut or the most direct path. This is a great idea because players that discover it and bypass the puzzle could actually catch the villain by surprise or circumvent arduous and resource-draining combats. I imagine it would feel very satisfying for the players if the enemies were to display shock and panic that the heroes have somehow circumvented their defenses. Perhaps they even come up behind the villains as they're talking about how they're going to ambush the heroes. One practical application of this would be for you to have a direct passageway through a keep. The keep's hallways are winding and maze-like so that it confounds invading forces, but that's not practical for the keep's everyday use and purposes. Uh, so there is a direct passageway through the keep. It's just protected via a puzzle of some kind. I think this is so funny to kind of create a Maginot line in your game of D&D. The Maginot line was this like incredible defense construction that the French used in World War II, and the Germans ended up just going around it, and the French didn't expect them to like go through the mountains, I think, is how they passed through. And you could maybe create a scenario like that in Dungeons & Dragons, where you could use different puzzles and keys and uh, sabotaging to get through. But overall, you could also just go around and going around will mean you're going through difficult terrain and it will be a longer more arduous process but it is still possible i, I like kind of that historical example i think it, i thought it was kind of interesting hearing you talk about that yeah i i hope that this kind of demonstrates the flexibility of these these six questions that we've outlined we didn't provide a step-by-step -step, this is how you make the perfect puzzle, uh, and this is what the perfect puzzle looks like. Instead, we've provided you with a framework that you can use to interrogate or uh, analyze the puzzles that you are going to run for your players that you have designed to hopefully make them better, uh, so, so that you're asking yourself almost like a workbook these questions and, and realizing maybe some angles that you hadn't thought about your puzzle from, but maybe your players would have. Uh, and now you've, you're more prepared to handle those different improvised situations. Or maybe it's a puzzle that you have happened across in Wizards of the Coast material or a different third-party module that you're a little nervous to run uh, because it maybe seems like there's some holes in it, whether it be plot holes or just uh, holes for your players to run through and take advantage of. And, and you want to be more prepared to present a more holistic encounter to your players rather than just a puzzle that needs to hold up all of the fun of that entire encounter by itself. Now you have the tools to 
customize these encounters. Yeah, I was excited to do this episode because I think talking in the abstract and talking in principles is something we like to do because that's the most applicable thing. You can take Dungeons & Dragons principles and, and learn from them and fit them to your table and your style of game. But I also think sometimes uh, they can be a little too abstract and having specific examples that you can look at and that we talked through, I think, is really helpful for topics like this, where with puzzles, sometimes it's important to actually see the puzzle to know why it would work to get inspired to think about how you might turn this into a puzzle for your game rather than just trying to come up with a puzzle for yourself wholesale based on some ideas we talked about in in the last episode. Exactly. Just to summarize, those six questions were, how many others have tried to solve this puzzle in the past and what happened to them? How easy is it to find the puzzle? Ease of circumventing the puzzle? Why would your players circumvent the puzzle? Is it a good thing that they might circumvent the puzzle? What resource cost are they paying to circumvent the puzzle? What percentage of your encounter is a puzzle? An encounter that is almost all puzzle, like Ariel's Pangram example, needs to have a more satisfying, more complete puzzle, whereas a puzzle like my zombie encounter can have a pretty dumb puzzle, a puzzle that isn't all that satisfying to solve because the answer was pretty easy, but is paired with a combat. A much smaller percentage of the encounter is the puzzle. Can you remove superfluous ability checks? And how plot blocking is the puzzle? Until next time, I'm Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thanks for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails. Thank you.